Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books, timely books for changing times. One of the really great things about running this publishing business is that I get to work very closely with and talk frequently to some of the great experts on the important issues of our day. On November 12, 2011, I got to talk to Raidar Visser, whose great book on U.S. policy in Iraq was one of the first books we published last year. So I'm here on the line with Raidar Visser, the author of A Responsible End, The United States and the Iraqi Transition 2005 through 2010, which is a really remarkable analysis of so many of the things that the U.S. occupying power tried to achieve in Iraq in that period. And we're now coming up to the point where um, the withdrawal agreement that was concluded by President George W. Bush in late 2008, shortly before he left office, the implementation of that is about to come to an end um, with the scheduled December 31st withdrawal of all U.S. forces from Iraq. Ryder, first of all, I'd like to ask you your assessment of recent um, U.S. diplomacy in Iraq. Do you think that these past two ambassadors, the, uh, the last one, Christopher Hill, and the present one, Jim Jeffrey, have been doing a good job in terms of trying to rebuild Iraq or not? Well, I was uh, deeply critical of the role played by the first of those two, Christopher Hill, from 2009 to 2010, he was uh, the first ambassador uh, of the Obama administration in Iraq. And um, in my book, I've criticized Hill's policies uh, in Iraq for being overly lenient to the, um, to the sectarian forces uh, in Iraqi politics, for, for unnecessarily giving way to Iranian influences. Uh, in particular in relation to the uh, parliamentary uh, elections uh, in March 2010, both in the run-up to those elections as well as in the post-election phase, where Hill did play a role, um, but he did, not, he did not stimulate the sort of political compromise that would have helped Iraq develop autonomy in a very uh, difficult uh, regional environment. On the contrary, he, he in many ways helped uh, Iran to acquire uh, a stronger position in Iraq. And how about uh, the present ambassador? How do you assess his uh, performance? Well, Ambassador Jeffrey came to Baghdad in autumn 2010 when, when most of the premises for the formation of the second Maliki government had already been put in place by his predecessor, Ambassador Hill. So, so there were really limits to what Jeffrey could have uh, achieved in terms of reversing what Hill had already done. There was uh, an opportunity this summer because the Iraqi parties increasingly realized that the deal they had cut in December 2010 wasn't working. So they were beginning to uh, re-examine that deal. And uh, at that point, perhaps the U.S. ambassador could have uh, brought some new ideas uh, into the mix. But Jeffrey didn't do that. He basically uh, 
confirmed the U.S. support for the agreement that had been clinched in, in December 2010. Uh, and, and, and that really uh, did nothing to, to help the situation and, and, and leaves us with a very stalemated situation that we have today. So um, we're reading, you know, in the newspapers here in the United States, maybe once or twice a week there is some major, like a, a suicide bomber or a car bomber or something. I mean, there are still a large number of very violent incidents happening in Iraq that seem to have a, a clear sectarian um, underpinning. Maybe there's, there are other things going on as well. In, in your book, um, A Responsible End, you say Operation Iraqi Freedom may be over, but Operation Iraqi Partition lives on, regardless of Security Council resolutions or status of forces agreements. Um, do you think that partition will kind of gel into, a, into an established political fact, or is there still a chance that the Iraqi parties and and movements may, may be able to rebuild a unitary state? Well, the chances are still there, but one of my arguments is that the chances are far uh, smaller today in 2011 than they were in 2009. Um, and a key, role, uh, a key role in bringing about that development, that negative development, was played by the external uh, environment in the United States in particular. This is what I refer to when I talk about the Operation I Iraqi Partition. It's not really about a military operation to partition Iraq, but a mental operation to partition the country um, brought about by the way we people in the West talk about Iraq uh, and how Washington talks about Iraq. We'd always um, focusing on, on sectarian uh, tensions so much that in the end the prophecy be becomes true because there was much less sectarian tension in Iraqi politics in 2009 than there was today. Today we're seeing some unprecedented developments uh, like Sunnis asking for federalism, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. Two years ago they weren't even contemplating this. So, so uh, we're seeing uh, this as acts of desperation, um, dissatisfaction with the process of, of national reconciliation. And again, there was a window in 2009 that both the Iraqis and the international players just uh, didn't, didn't uh, exploit. So we had that situation where the, the Americans in particular, as the primary kind of external party, were encouraging this sort of apportionment system um, and the very broad, I mean, as you describe it in your book, they wanted in that post-election period during all those long years, long months of 2010, to ensure that there was a, a very broad government rather than a more compact government that perhaps could have governed. Yes, precisely. The, 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 the notion of... of, of um what the Iraqis call a political majority government was antithetical to, 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 to Washington at that time. They were so used to thinking that Sunnis and Shiites and Kurds had to be in the government that they couldn't conceptualize any other form of government. Of course, the Kurds uh, already do enjoy uh, 
considerable autonomy as a, a federal region. Um, and that uh, autonomy was created precisely with the, w w to give them guarantees in, in case they were not represented in the central government. So, for example, there was, there was no imperative to include the Kurds, uh, constitutionally speaking, but nevertheless, the United States uh, insisted that they be included. And once they'd, once they'd uh, made that decision to, to push for the inclusion of the Kurds and, and, and also de decided to push for Maliki, the, the, the leader of the Shiite Islamist State or Law Coalition, as prime minister, there really was no other uh, alternative than, than this uh, big, oversized, unwieldy and very ineffective government that we have today. So, in fact, from the way I look at it, it looks as though the Kurds have something of a privileged position inside Baghdad, as well as their autonomy deal out there in their federal region. So you have a, an anomalous situation, which is not anomalous at all, of course, from a historical perspective where imperial and colonial powers have always used a minority to kind of... Um, as, as their chief interlocutors in governance. Is that, is that a fair description or not? Well, the, the, um, the Kurds have uh, certainly, uh, let's say, taken advantage uh, of the uh, uh, tendency of the Americans to think of Iraq in, in ethno-sectarian terms. Uh, and they have been... Um, and it's, it's, it, to them, it's natural to, to do that because they have mobilized on, on, uh, ethnic, on ethnic identity for, for a couple of decades now. Uh, so for them, it was very natural uh, to do it. But the biggest change, if we compare with the situation before 2003 and the start of the war, was that prior to that, the Kurds were mostly focused on their own agenda, autonomy for the Kurdish region, Whereas now they're, they have also been uh, pushing for, uh, for uh, sectarian identities to be politicized, such as those uh, that separate the Sunnis from the Shiites. So compared to the situation before 2003, we now have a tripartite paradigm for Iraqi politics with Sunnis and Shiites and Kurds, whereas before 2003, most people and most commentators would, would talk about Arabs and Kurds. Right. So here we are, um, like, uh, nearly nine years after the decision, well, uh, nearly nine years after the invasion of Iraq by George W. Bush. Now we have, you know, elsewhere in the region, and I'm looking at this a bit more broadly, we have people with, you know, excellent intentions wanting to build um, democracies is it your sense that any of them are looking at Iraq as a model for how to build democracy in other Arab countries? That's what uh, Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki is telling us. But, but to be honest, I think it's the opposite. Uh, I think uh, people are looking, um, people in the Arab world, and especially in the emerging new democracies of the Arab Spring, are looking to Iraq as an example of how not to do it. Um, in particular, the, the, the exaggerated focus uh, on, on sectarian uh, identities in, in uh, Iraqi politics after the war uh, is something uh, that, that many of these um, 
other uh, Arab countries will will like to to avoid. Of course, uh, to some extent, the, the, some of these countries are not as susceptible to, to sectarianism simply because they're uh, more homogenous uh, in, in sectarian terms. But but certainly, in, uh, the issue is alive in Egypt. Uh, and also in Libya, there are regional issues that have to be tackled, um, and hopefully they will find, um, let's say, uh, a more stable, uh, controlled, and, and conservative way of, of dealing with them than, than the, the, the rather wild uh, constitutional model for Iraq that was adopted in 2005 with American support. Yeah, I think, I mean, Iraq has been put forward by some people in this country also as a model um, back at the beginning of the occupation and also more recently with the emergence of the Arab Spring, um, put forward as a model um, for the kind of the political constitution, institutional uh, framework, which as you, as you say, you know, it doesn't look attractive. I've spent time in um, Syria and Egypt and in both countries, you know, in Egypt obviously you have the Coptic question, and and people look askance at the at the prospect that that you might have the kind of sectarianism and the sectarian hatred that you have in uh, Iraq, and that I saw when I was in Lebanon, obviously. Then there are other issues where the the post Saddam Iraqis were dealing with you know the legacies of Saddam. Um, and with Saddam himself in person. Do you think that the, the legacies of Saddamism and Baathism were dealt with well at all in Iraq? Or are there lessons, I mean, are there object lessons, like lessons of what not to do, or lessons, maybe some of those things, debathification worked or not? Well, I think the there are... There are some good things and there are some bad things when it comes to the Iraqi uh, transitional experience. The the law that governs debathification uh, in Iraq uh, was passed in 2008 and I think is a, is a relatively uh, moderate uh, piece of legislation. It it uh, is uh, quite liberal in in giving um, officials of the former regime the the right to work um, also in in the new Iraq. Um, the problem in Iraq is not as much not so much the the, the, the legislation that has been passed, but the way um, the law has been politicized and frankly exploited and twisted uh, in in ways that do not resonate with with the original text of the law uh, at all. In practice, what we've seen uh, are very sectarian patterns in, in which Baathists with, uh, who happen to be uh, Sunnis are systematically targeted, whereas Baathists uh, who happen to be Shiites are mostly um, uh, are mostly allowed to 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 go on in their positions, even in cases where they should have been removed according to this debathification law. So um, Iraq uh, really exhibits the the the, the, the tension between um, 
arriving at a legal framework for handling these transitional issues and, and, and the danger of politicizing them, uh, because there's not much uh, use in, in, in this uh, rather progressive uh, piece of legislation if, if Iraqi politicians uh, can overrule it at will. Uh, and, and that's what they've been doing um, lately. Uh, and it's also a factor behind the, the latest um, the latest upsurge of, of protests in the uh, Sunni majority areas and, and even calls for federalism in those areas. Mm, interesting. How about the, the whole war crimes uh, process and you know the, the the trial of Saddam himself and some of his hench people, henchmen? Well. Again, I, I guess the problem is the speed with which uh, all of the, uh, these things were conducted. They seem to be uh, they seem to be extremely hasty. The the various the string of executions we've seen in Iraq seem to strangely coincide with with uh, junctures at which it was politically op uh, opportune to, to to have those kinds of uh, executions. Um, and uh, as a natural result of all of this, the judiciary in Iraq has a somewhat uh, tainted image, uh, and its its ability to to uh, to uh, emerge as a neutral broker uh, has been affected by all of this. So uh, the the general lesson is that these things should probably be allowed to go on for for. A lot longer than they have in Iraq. That may be painful, perhaps, but but on the other hand, to have it as hasty as we've seen in Iraq may may easily lead to accusations about the judiciary, about political pressures on the judiciary. Mm, interesting. I hadn't thought of that. You know that it actually kind of dragged down the ability of the judiciary to emerge as an independent and respected force. Is that what you're saying? I think that is a lesson uh, that we we've learned. Certainly, if if you if you add to that other cases where the judiciary has become uh, politicized, such as mm -hmm. the debate about the election results after the um, March right. parliamentary elections, uh, all of these uh, episodes add up, and if systematically. Iraqis get the impression that one sector of the population uh, is uh, discriminated against by the judiciary, then there is a problem uh, about that judiciary's ability to, to, to act as a neutral arbiter for all of Iraq. Well, um, so we're coming up toward this December 31st deadline when all the Americans are supposed to be out. Do you think it will happen? Well, there is a degree of uncertainty connected to the last visit uh, by Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki to uh, to Washington before um, before this whole agreement comes to an end. He is scheduled to visit uh, Washington on uh, December 12th, and there has been some suggestion that although officially both sides now say that there will be no. U.S. military trainers in Iraq after 2011. There is a degree of uncertainty uh, related to that visit by Maliki. Maybe there might be some sort of last-minute uh, solutions, but, but but we have no specific uh, information to suggest that that is the case today. 
So uh, unless uh, there is some sort of dramatic development, the, the, the withdrawal will uh, be completed uh, on schedule uh, before the 31st of December, and all the U.S. forces will be out. And if that happens, or even if there's just a small residual force, um, as you say, may happen, what what will be the what do you expect to be the effects inside Iraq? Is is Iraq going to erupt in some kind of maelstrom of violence? Will Iranian influence just increase unchecked, um, or or might we see a better outcome? I'm not sure if it would make that much of a difference. I mean, the numbers we're talking about here, anyway, are so small that those soldiers would would probably have. Uh, be full-time occupied uh, protecting themselves rather than having any sort of major uh, influence on the dynamics of, of Iraqi politics. I guess it's more symbolic, but the more important trend, I think, is the general tendency in Iraqi politics since the last elections in 2010 towards sectarian polarization again, which was something we didn't see in the local elections in 2009. Uh, and it means that the Iraq that is, uh, will be left behind by the United States on 31st of December, uh, and, and quite frankly, regardless of whether there are a couple of thousand extra trainers or not, will be an Iraq that is more similar to the Iraq of 2006 than, than the Iraq of 2009. So an Iraq that is really still riven with uh, sectarian violence and in which families and communities are, are not living in security. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case, yes. Well, thank you so much. I'm sorry that uh, your conclusions are so grim, but that's kind of the conclusion that uh, you draw also in your book. Um, so I urge everybody who's listening um, to this obviously, to go out and, and read the whole book and to buy the book, Radar Visser's A Responsible End, The United States and the Iraqi Transition, 2005-2010. Thank you so much for talking to us, Radar, and uh, talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you.